coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast brought to you by our great friends at Alumni Hall. Make sure to give them a visit, guys. Make sure to check them out, whether it's in-store or online at alumnihall.com for all the best Georgia gear that you're going to find anywhere. They have every brand, every style, whatever it is that you're looking for, Alumni Hall is going to have you covered. But all right, guys, I am your host, Tyler, and Curtis is on vacation this week. He's heading out on a little cruise, and Charlie, Charlie's just living a life. She's out gallivanting across the country, across the globe, so she's having the time of her life this summer. Hopefully, maybe, possibly one day, we'll get her back here on the podcast once she decides to come back to Athens. So while my co-hosts are both out having a blast on vacation, I'm here to hold down the fort. Someone's got to do it. I am that guy, so I'm going to hold down the fort and make sure you guys are covered with that Georgia football fix that we bring you guys in. Each and every week during the season, offseason, it doesn't matter. We got you guys covered and today is going to be no different. And the lead topic for today's show, guys, this is about as easy as it gets because there's only one topic that has dominated the college football headlines over the past week. And that topic also just so happens to be the topic that has dominated my inbox over the past couple of days. So we are going to go heavy today on the SEC eight-game versus nine-game conference schedule. I know everybody in the world is talking about this right now, but what we're going to do today on the show is we're going to really try to look at this from a Georgia perspective and talk about what the decision to go with this temporary place-holding eight-game schedule means for us, means for the Georgia Bulldogs. I'm definitely going to give you my personal thoughts on the big picture eight-game versus nine-game conference schedule. We've talked about that a little bit over the past month or two, but I'll definitely give you my thoughts. A lot of you have asked my opinion on that, and I definitely want to get those thoughts out to you guys. But I do, again, want to make sure we focus on this more heavily from a Georgia Bulldogs perspective, like what this means for our program. So with that in mind, let's start here. I know there are a lot of you who are worried about what this does for our traditional annual rivalries, particularly Florida and Auburn. Those are the two big ones, right? Now, I'm going to talk more about the Auburn rivalry a little bit later in the show, but let's start out by assuaging some of your concerns. I know there are people who are very concerned about this. Okay, eight-game schedule, and with this one-year temporary stopgap schedule, there was no specific provision made for a team having its annual rivalry game protected. And so now, working with Dogs Daily... I'm privy to some of these like Google searches, like what are the most popular Google searches out there? And the most popular Google search out there, I think it was was Thursday or Friday night, was Georgia's 2023 schedule. So I know there are people that are concerned about it. And I am here to alleviate some of those concerns because if you didn't catch what Greg Sankey had to say, so Greg Sankey, SEC commissioner, he released a statement. What Thursday night was, that's when I think it came down Thursday night. He released a statement and he made it very clear in that statement that the traditional rivalries that these institutions feel are very important to protect, they will be protected in this temporary one-year A-game schedule. When it comes to those traditional rivalries, here's what Sankey had to say last week. He said, quote, I think I've been clear about honoring traditional rivals, so I am excited about that, but I'm not going to give my schedule away right now. We understand the priorities. We will definitely protect those secondary rivalries to the extent that we can. 
And that schedule will be released next week, guys. Next Wednesday, June 14th. In fact, the second show this week, when I release it on Wednesday night, early Thursday, I'm going to give you guys my most educated guess on what that schedule is going to look like. I'm going to give you guys a schedule prediction. I was going to try to do that today, but once I sat down and tried to like put the pieces together, I quickly realized, oh wait, this is going to take way longer than I thought. Because what I have to do is I have to basically try to put in place a schedule for every team in the conference. I have to go through each team. Okay, I already have this document laid out. Each team, okay, who are their, their traditional rivalries, their primary rivalries, their secondary rivalries, when they usually play those teams, who do they play last year, where do they play those games last year. So I'm going to go through that for every team in the conference, and I'm also going to include Texas and Oklahoma in that, so 16 teams, and try to lay out the schedules that way. And that way I can give you my like most educated guess possible. So I'm going to have that for you guys later in the week. But one thing I can tell you with 100% confidence is that we are going to play Florida. That There is no doubt in my mind that game will be played. I mean, hell, we are contractually obligated to play that game. We're going to play that game. I think the game that fans are more worried about is the Auburn game because you don't have that contractual obligation component. And it's also a secondary rivalry. It is an important rivalry, but it's a secondary rivalry. It is not a primary rivalry game like the Georgia-Florida game is. So there is a little less clarity on whether that game will be protected, but I still feel very confident that game will indeed be protected. If you go back to what Greg Sankey said, again, he's clear about honoring traditional rivals. He's excited about that. He's going to try his best to whatever extent they can to honor those secondary rivalries. And among the secondary rivalries out there in the SEC, there's two that stand out to me as more important than the others. It's Georgia-Auburn, the Deep South's oldest rivalry, and then you got Tennessee-Alabama. As far as I'm concerned, none of the other secondary rivalries really register the same way that Georgia-Auburn and Alabama-Tennessee register. So I do feel very confident that those two games will be protected, that we're going to play Auburn and that Alabama is going to play Tennessee. So if you are one of the many that were worried about that, and I had a lot of you reach out to me over the weekend asking about that game specifically, so I did just want to come on here, and before I go anywhere else, I wanted to try to alleviate a lot of those concerns. We'll find out for sure next week, but I feel very, very confident that we're going to play Florida and Auburn at some point next season. Now, as for what I want when it comes down to the SEC schedule, eight games versus nine games, I have for a long time been in favor of, of more compelling games. I want more good football games. And I say that as a fan, as a diehard fan, not just of the Georgia Bulldogs. Obviously, that's where my heart lies. But I just love college football. And as a college football fan, I want to see more good football games. I don't want to see us play UT Martin or see LSU play Grambling or see Alabama play UT Chattanooga. Those games are absolutely worthless. I have less than zero interest in watching any of those games, and I will not watch a second of any of those games outside of Georgia UT Martin. And I know the argument, the pushback I always get on that is, how dare you say that those games are worthless? They're not worthless to those programs who need that paycheck. Uh, I've addressed this many times on the show, at least I feel like I've addressed it many times, but for those of you who might have missed it, I just don't buy that argument. It is not our job to subsidize those programs. It is not my job as a season ticket holder, as a donor, to subsidize UT Martin, to subsidize UT Chattanooga. That ain't my job. And it's not that I want those programs to go away. I do not. I really do want high school kids that aren't Power 5 players, that aren't FBS players. I want them to have opportunities. I want those programs to still exist. I find it hilarious. I really do. Because 
When you think about college football fans in general, I would venture to say the vast majority of college football fans around the country, especially in the Southeast, are adamantly opposed to the concept of socialism. But yet, a lot of those same people who are opposed to the, con- the concept of socialism politically, they're completely okay with the University of Georgia and all these other FBS programs subsidizing, or let me use a catchphrase here, sharing the wealth with these FCS programs. So we hate socialism, but we're cool with it when it comes to college football. I just find that hilarious. I just think there has to be a better solution for those programs being able to come up with the money to pay scholarships for their athletes. And even if there isn't, if we can't come up with a more creative solution, and the only way to preserve those programs is for these Power 5 programs to pay those schools a million plus dollars to come play us once a year, let's just pay them and not actually play them because nobody wants to see those games. Those players don't want to play those games. They get murdered. So if you've got to pay them, pay them. But we don't need to play those games. Just put the money in a pool and distribute it out to those programs and let us play Power 5 programs. That's that's the way I view it. Now, I know that I'm the minority there. All, I, I see all the time people on social media, people on message boards, people I know tell me, oh, man, we got to protect those programs. We got to make sure to, to, to give those opportunities to kids. Yeah, I want kids to have opportunities too, but I don't want to see those games. No one wants to see those games. Yeah, and I know the other argument is, well, it gives our players who don't get a chance to play in, in other games, it gives them a chance to get some experience. Okay, cool, yeah, I guess it does. But at what point are we going to start worrying about the fans? That's what gets me fired about this. No one cares about the fans. The college football fan, the donors, the ticket payers, even those people who just watch the games on their TV because you know what? That's putting money in the pockets of these conferences and these teams across the country too in the form of TV revenue. All these teams are so worried about, oh, we still want to make sure we can make a bowl game. If we play nine games, we might not make a bowl game. That's what some teams think, right? Or some teams are saying, well, we've got all these non-conference games scheduled out this this far into the future, and we don't want to buy all those games. Where's that money coming from? Then you have programs like Alabama with Nick Saban saying, oh, this isn't fair. Like We have to play LSU, Tennessee, and Auburn every year. That's all about coaches and administrators thinking about themselves and trying to not get fired to preserve their jobs and their livelihoods. They don't care about the fans. That's what's getting lost here, and that's what really angers me about all this. Because what would be best for the fans is if every single Power 5 team out there only played Power 5 teams. That's what would be best for the fans. That's like In my perfect college football world, that is what I ultimately want. I want Georgia to play 12 Power 5 games every year. But as we know, there's nothing perfect about this world. There's nothing perfect about the world in general. And there's certainly nothing perfect about the college football world. With all the competing interests and all the different circumstances for these different programs out there, it's just not ever going to be perfect. But in my perfect world, Power 5 teams only play Power 5 teams. So yeah, the idea of a nine-game schedule, a nine-game SEC schedule, that is compelling to me because that would mean more good football games. But there are also some very serious drawbacks to the nine-game conference schedule as well. There's going to be an, the college football has always been about inequity. There's never been equity in college football. There never will be. But certainly, when you're looking at okay, if we're going to go nine-game conference schedule, we have three permanent rivals. The composition of those permanent rivalries that there's going to be a, a great degree of inequity in that, and you're never going to make everybody happy. And that that is certainly a problem that has to be overcome. Those arguments kind of ring hollow to me, but. They matter to some of these teams out there, some of these programs, some of these coaches. So that's something that's going to have to be overcome. Now, when it comes to an eight-game conference schedule, I'm actually fine with that, with an eight-game conference schedule, as long as, here's a caveat, as long as we, Georgia, 
are playing two plus non-conference power five opponents every year, which is exactly what we're doing, guys. We have scheduled out from 2024 through 2034, we have two plus, at least two non-conference power five games scheduled every single year. There's actually four years in that span of time where we have three non-con power five games scheduled. In 2024, we have a neutral site game with Clemson. Boo, neutral site games. Hate that. But hey, I'm glad we're playing Clemson. And of course, we have Georgia Tech. We have Georgia Tech every year. We know that, right? In 2025, we go to UCLA. We've got Georgia Tech. 2026, we got UCLA at home, Georgia Tech, and at Louisville. So 2026 is the first year where we have three Power 5 non-conference games on the schedule. 2027, we have at Florida State, Louisville at home, at Georgia Tech. 2028, we have uh, Florida State at home, Georgia Tech at home. 2029, we are at Clemson, at Tech. 2030, we have Clemson at home, Ohio State at home, and Georgia Tech at home. 2031, we are at Ohio State, we're at Georgia Tech. 2032, we got Clemson, we got Georgia Tech. 2033, we're at Clemson. NC State at Georgia Tech, so there's another three Power 5 non-con schedule. 2034, we've got at NC State in Georgia Tech. So for the next, what, 10, 11 years out in the future, we have at least two non-con Power 5 games scheduled. I'm totally cool with an eight-game schedule if that is the case. And that was going to be the case this year, as we all know. We had the Oklahoma game scheduled, but that game has has been canceled. We all know why. Don't want to dig back into that. But that's something that we have made a point to do moving into the future. And for me personally, my, that's my biggest issue with moving to nine games, a nine-game conference schedule. That is my biggest issue because those seasons where we have three non-com Power 5 games scheduled, the ones I just read off to you, that would mean that we would have 12 Power 5 games those seasons. Now, again, as I just said a few minutes ago, in my perfect college ball world, I would be all about that. Power 5 only playing Power 5. I would love to see that if, here's the caveat, if everyone else is doing the same thing because otherwise, we are putting ourselves at a competitive disadvantage, willingly putting ourselves at a competitive disadvantage. Now, we'd still probably be okay with an expanded playoff with 12 teams getting in the college playoff. If you lose two games, you'll probably still get in three games. Depending on your, your strength of schedule, you still maybe have a shot to sneak in there. But even if you get into the playoffs with a 12-game Power 5 schedule like that when everyone else is not playing 12 Power 5 games, you might still be able to get in but it could definitely hurt your seeding, which means that you, your team might be forced to play an extra playoff game, which makes makes it more difficult for you to actually get to and win a national championship. My question just becomes, if you're playing nine conference games like that, why willingly make it harder on yourself? Uh, here's the example I would give you guys. So You, you guys know, uh, over the years, I've made it pretty clear. I, I like to run. Uh, I do marathons, half marathons, that kind of thing. I'm not like great at it, but it's something that I... I like to challenge myself with, and like my my dream goal, my very much reach goal is to qualify for the Boston Marathon. I'm not really especially close to that right now, but hey, a man can dream, right? So when I'm picking what marathons I want to run, I usually am looking for marathons that have a reputation for having fast, flat courses, right? Because that would enhance the opportunity I have to put up a good enough time to actually qualify for the Boston Marathon. So to me, the idea of having a nine-game conference schedule and then your program scheduling three non-con Power 5 games when no one else in the country is really doing that, or most teams in the country aren't doing that, 
to me, the way I look at it is that would be like me trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon by picking the most difficult qualifying course out there, even if it means that I barely miss qualifying by mere seconds. I'm just trying to be a tough guy. So let me pick the hilliest course that's run in the dead of the summer. It's run like July 17th, some random day in July when it's 95 degrees outside and try to make it as hard as I possibly can myself to achieve my goal. Because that's what you would basically be doing if you have a nine game SEC schedule and you schedule three power five opponents. I might still qualify for Boston under those circumstances, but it's certainly a lot less likely than it would be if I picked a flatter, faster course where I'm running the race in February where it's 35 degrees instead of 95 degrees. Just why make it harder on yourself? So that's my big complaint with the nine game conference schedule is I think that it limits your flexibility in scheduling non-conference power five opponents. And personally, this is just me. Again, this is just me. This is where I'm coming from. This is my perspective. I love those games. I loved going to Notre Dame in 2017. That was a once in a lifetime thing for me. I absolutely loved that trip. I loved going to Colorado back in 2010. I think Clemson is a terrible college town, but I still had a great time going to Clemson in 2013. Arizona State, Oklahoma State, all these road games, these true road games, they're fun, man. They're awesome. It's a great experience. And now I realize not every fan goes to the games, and I, I understand that. I really do. Again, this is my perspective. This is selfishly the way that I personally look at it. I want more games like that. I want Georgia to play at Wisconsin. That'd be incredible to go to Madison, to go to Camp Randall. I want Georgia to play in Autzen Stadium. I want Georgia to play at Washington. I want Georgia, we are going to play at Ohio State. I want Georgia to play in the Big House. I want Georgia to play at Beaver Stadium. I want those games. Those are big time, exciting games for the fan bases. Even if you're not going to the game, that's exciting. Those are big time games that you never get to see. And if you do get a chance to go to the games, it's an unbelievable experience. I want those games. And I think you lose the ability to schedule a lot of those games if you have a nine game conference schedule. Now, again, if everyone in college football would agree on playing only power five opponents, then I'd be... Totally cool with the nine-game conference schedule. No problem, because that means we still get to go out and play three power five non-conference opponents every single year. But guys, like, look, within our own conference, we can't even get the teams to agree on our schedule format. You think we're going to get the entire college football landscape to agree on that? No way in hell. There's just no way in the current set of college football that is ever going to happen. So that's my big issue. That's my big issue with the nine-game conference schedule. I know that's a very selfish perspective. Maybe it's a narrow perspective, but that is my perspective as a guy who is a diehard Georgia fan and goes to all these games and absolutely loves those experiences going to these other college campuses that I never get a chance to go to. I was really excited about going to Norman this year, but we all know that's not going to happen. Maybe eventually, probably eventually. It will happen eventually, just not this year, which kind of sucks. I wanted to be this year. So a nine-game conference schedule... Long story short, is not perfect. I think it's what I would probably prefer, but it's not perfect. But neither is the eight-game conference schedule either. I mean, look, the, the long-term issue with the eight-game conference schedule is what do you do with the rivalry games? Because there are those secondary rivalry games. I mean, some programs like Georgia have like, you know, have third and fourth tier rivalry games. I mean, I would say Tennessee, South Carolina, those are third and fourth tier rivalry games that we play every year that are important to some portion of the fan base. So if you live in North Georgia, if you live uh, on the Georgia-South Carolina border, like those games might be the biggest game every single year for you. Those might be the most important rivalry games for you, but they just don't hit the way that like, the Florida rivalry does and the way that the Auburn rivalry does. So 
what do you do with those rivalry games? That's that's the big question when it comes to the eight-game conference schedule. Here's what I would say about that. Again, this is my personal view, guys. This You guys are asking me. I got a lot of questions this weekend about what's your take on this? How do you view it? Eight games versus nine games? What's, what's the benefits to eight versus nine? What are the drawbacks? Eight versus nine? Here's my perspective. Personally, when it comes to the rivalry games, I don't really care that much about the Auburn game. I really don't. I will admit that. I really don't care that much. And that's coming from a guy that's big on college ball traditions, especially in the face of of realignment and losing a lot of the traditions that I think make college football, that are a big part, I should say, of making college football what college football is. I am sensitive to protecting a lot of those traditions. I would prefer to keep that traditional game with Auburn every single year because it is a tradition. But the way I look at the Auburn game is that there's not as much tradition attached to it as there is, say, let's say the cocktail party with Florida, right? Like that, there's certainly a lot more tradition with Florida than with Auburn. I know we played Auburn more than we played Florida, the Deep South's oldest rivalry. I understand all that. Deep South's oldest rivalry. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, get it. I understand that. But for me personally, I just never felt the same way about the Auburn rivalry as I do the Florida rivalry. Now, I'm not going to say there's not moments where I just absolutely hate Auburn. Yeah, absolutely. Like the Cam Newton year, yeah, hated Auburn for sure. But I don't have this like permanent, deep-rooted hatred for Auburn the way that I do for Florida. So I just don't view it the same way. And when I look at the Auburn game anyway, like, I feel like we've already kind of thrown tradition to the wind with that game to some small degree when we move that game to early October from a traditional November spot. Like we already messed with the tradition to some degree there. So why not just go the rest of the way and just say we're not going to play every year? We'll still play them every other year with an eight game schedule. It just won't be every single year. So for me, I just, I don't think, I just don't think that the Auburn game is a sacred cow. That That's what it comes down to for me. I don't think it's a sacred cow. Some of you probably disagree. That's totally cool. I respect that. Me personally, I just don't view it that way. I mean, honestly, if I had to sacrifice the Auburn game to maintain more flexibility with non-conference scheduling, I would I would make that trade. I would definitely make that trade. Because for me, again, playing those cool non-conference matchups, that's way more interesting than playing a game that we played over 120 times. And I know that we have a lot of rivals. I definitely consider Florida a rivalry. That's the primary rivalry. Georgia Tech's a rival. Auburn's arrival, South Carolina to a lesser degree, Tennessee to a lesser degree, certainly not as long-standing and not as uh, deep-rooted in terms of the hatred and, and all those kind of things. But we do have a lot of rivals of, of different degrees, right? But for me, the only one that I really care about keeping on an annual basis is the Georgia-Florida game. That's the one. So if we went to an eight-game conference schedule and only played Florida every year as a permanent rival, I'd be okay with that, again, as long as we are playing two or more non-con power five games every year because I think that's what fans deserve. But really, when it comes down to it, we all know what's at the root of all this. It's all about TV revenue. That's that's really at the core of this issue. And the reality when it comes to the TV revenue is that ESPN, who is going to have exclusive rights to broadcasting SEC games starting next season, they are not in a position right now to pony up. They are just not in a position right now. Maybe next year, maybe in two years, but not now. And the reason they aren't in that position right now is that they are going through a series of layoffs, several rounds of layoffs. Disney, their parent company, has just slashed costs by $5.5 billion. And that has necessitated ESPN, who again, owned by Disney, to lay off a lot of long-time employees. Hell, they just laid off a dude that had been working for them for like 40-plus years 
uh, a month or two ago. It's just a really, really bad look for them to pony up more money for the SEC right now for a nine-game conference schedule when they're cutting all these jobs and they're laying off all these people. And they also have more rights they're trying to bid on here. They're going to have to bid on the casual playoff rights when that deal comes up here in a couple of years. So that certainly factors into that as well. Like how much are they going to have to pay for those college football rights? They're probably not going to get exclusive rights to the college playoff like they have the first however many years because Fox is going to be a big player. And you're going to look at the Big Ten, the, the Big 12. Like They're going to insist on their TV partners having a, a cut of those playoffs, the expanded playoffs as well. So ESPN is not going to have as much money to pony up. But they're gonna, still going to have to pony up to renew the, that deal. And they want to see, I imagine, okay, where are we sitting financially after we bid on those rights, the NBA contracts will be coming up here in, in a couple of years. So I think that's why you hear Greg Sankey preaching patience right now. That's why you have him saying things right now like, quote, over time, we won't be shying away from anything. We just didn't add another game during a period of transition. If you're that impatient, I'm glad you're not running a conference. We're going to use the ability to look deeply at how we walk through issues, how we deal with change around the playoff, how we impact our media partners in a positive way, how we think about non-conference scheduling. And as I said, the reality is right now their media partner, ESPN, simply is not in a position right now to pay more for that SEC inventory. And the SEC is in a position where they can wait. Now, I will say, I do think the SEC made somewhat of a misstep here with signing a 10-year deal with ESPN. The reason I call that somewhat of a misstep, it's not that they signed with ESPN, it's that they went with a 10-year deal. Because you don't have much leverage if you're the SEC right now in those negotiations, in those conversations with ESPN. Because ESPN can just look at the SEC and say, too bad guys, we've got you under contract for 10 more years. We know one thing, we know you aren't going anywhere for 10 years. And that's the thing with these TV contracts. Like You want to make sure the deal is long enough to give you some security, but you also have to be very careful about not making these deals too long. Because the dynamics are rapidly shifting in this day and age when it comes to how games are distributed, when it comes to what other conferences are getting with their TV deals. 10 years is a long time to be tied up to one network, to one media partner. The Big Ten, for instance, and their new mega deal with Fox, that's a seven-year deal. It's not a 10-year deal. They get out of that deal quicker and can get more money quicker. The SEC, by signing a 10-year deal, you risk leaving money on the table for that additional security. And you also risk situations like this where you add more members to your conference in an era where everything is changing in college football. Realignment is still certainly not finished. There's going to be more realignment before it's all said and done. And while this is happening, you're at a 10-year deal with, with ESPN, and they don't really have to pony up any more money for that. Because as far as I know, and I have looked and looked and looked into this, guys, but as far as I know, the SEC included no language in their deal with ESPN that would require ESPN to pay anything more than a pro-rated increase when the SEC adds more members. So let's say that we add four more teams over the next five, six years to the SEC, which I, I don't know if it'll happen, but it's certainly within the realm of possibility it would be really nice to be able to get out of that ESPN deal a little bit earlier so that we could hit the market again and get the revenue that we deserve based on the additions to the conference. 
So I am a little surprised that Greg Sankey, who's a guy I have a lot of respect for, I think he's a very sharp guy. I'm surprised that they went with a 10-year deal with ESPN. I'm also very surprised they did not include some sort of language in there that would require ESPN to really actually pay for these additional teams being added to the conference and potentially going to a nine-game conference schedule. It's hard for me to believe there was not some sort of provision put into place within that deal, but as far as I've been able to find, there is no such provision that exists. So really, all the SEC can do is wait. They can't really force ESPN's hand here because they have no leverage whatsoever when it comes to this partnership. The only leverage they have, the only thing they could say is like, well, when our, when our contract's up, I guess we're going to have to look elsewhere. Yeah, that's 10 years from now. A lot of these presidents that are making decisions, Greg Sankey, they very well might not be in those same positions in 10 years. So it's kind of an empty threat. They say to ESPN, well, you know, you, you better you better live it up right now for these next 10 years because in 10 years we're going somewhere else. Well, yeah, maybe, but also maybe not because you guys probably aren't going to be the ones making decisions in 10 years. Really the only leverage the SEC has in these negotiations, in these conversations with ESPN is they can say, hey, look, we know more SEC conference games will equate to more dollars for you. We want you to be able to make that money. We want you to make more money. But we're only going to help you make more money by going to nine conference games if you're willing to share that money with us. And we are perfectly content with staying in eight games right now, which is exactly the message that last week's decision sent. So I guess it's not as though the SEC has no leverage. I just don't think they have enough leverage to really force ESPN's hand here. It all just comes down to how much does ESPN really want that additional revenue? that additional revenue that would come from an extra SEC conference game. If I had to guess, I would say sometime within the next two years, the SEC and ESPN will come to some sort of agreement that both parties will be happy with, and the SEC will go ultimately go to nine games. But as Sankey said, they're in a position as a conference to be patient here. They don't have to go to nine games right now. The reputation of the league is strong enough. There are enough power programs at the top of the league to maintain your strength of schedule as a conference, even if you're only playing eight conference games. I mean, guys, the Big Ten, the Big 12, the Pac-12, They've been playing nine conference games for quite a few years now, and that hasn't stopped the SEC from winning national championships. The SEC has won each of the last four national titles, five of the last six, six of the last eight, six of the nine Coswell playoff national championships have been won by the SEC with an eight-game conference schedule. In fact, no team that has played a nine-game conference schedule has ever won a Coswell playoff national championship. Ohio State won the very first Coswell playoff national championship game back in 2014, but they were playing an eight-game conference schedule at that point. The Big Ten did not start playing nine games until 2017. So it's not as though this eight-game conference schedule has hurt the SEC. And again, you can mitigate the effect it has on your strength of schedule metrics by very simply playing really cool, interesting Power 5 non-conference matchups which is exactly what we are doing, Alabama is doing, I think for the next 10, 15 years down the road, they also have at least two Power 5 non-conference games scheduled. So the big boys in the league who are actually competing for national titles, they are scheduling in a way with their non-conference slate to actually still compete with these other conferences who have nine conference games to, to still be able to compete with them when it comes to their strength of schedule. But that's why we are going with an eight-game conference schedule right now, at least for this one year, this one interim year. We'll see if it continues on for another year or two, but that's why we're doing it right now. There just very simply is no incentive for the SEC to expand currently unless there is money that that ESPN is going to pay the conference or unless 
the college football playoff committee comes out and they make some sort of statement, institute some sort of policy with the expanded playoffs, saying that that strength of schedule is going to play an increased role in determining selection for the college football playoff. But until that happens, there's absolutely no incentive for the SEC to expand to a nine-game conference schedule. Why would they? Who cares what the rest of the country thinks? Who cares what all these social media warriors are saying on message boards and on Twitter and on Instagram? Who freaking cares? And to all those people, what I would say is this. It's not the SEC's fault that all of you decided to go to a nine-game conference schedule. Big 10, Big 12, Pac-12, that's on you. That's not the SEC's fault. I kind of equate it to, let's go back to COVID, right? A couple years ago, let's go back to like three years. I kind of equate it to mask wearing during COVID. You know, once we got past the mask mandates, right? For a while, there were mask mandates out there where wherever you went, you had to have a mask on, right? But once we got far enough into the pandemic and we got past the mask mandates in most public spaces, you still had a lot of people wearing masks and shaming other people for not wearing them, shaming the people who decided, you know what, now that it's not mandated, I don't want to have to wear this mask anymore. And I'm really not trying to get political here whatsoever. I'm really not. I just find this to be an interesting parallel. You know, because back when that was happening, right, all these people were wearing masks out in public, which is, hey, that's cool. That is your right. If you feel more comfortable wearing a mask, that's awesome. Wear a mask. That, that's great. I just see somewhat of a parallel here. It's like, you know, just because you unilaterally decided that wearing a mask is what's best for you, which is great. If that works for you, that, that's great. But just because you decided for yourself, that's what's best for you. That's what works for you. That doesn't mean that I have to decide that's what's best for me. And that's how I kind of look at these other conferences, the Big Ten, the Big 12, the Pac-12, all their fan bases who are screaming bloody murder right now about the SEC's decision to stay at eight games. I look at them and say, just because you unilaterally decided to make it harder on yourself and go to nine games as a conference, doesn't mean that's what we have to do. Because you know what? Eight games has been working pretty damn well for us right now. So to wrap this up, I know I went a lot of different directions with this because it's a very complex issue and there are a lot of different aspects to it. But to kind of sum it all up, I am in favor of more good college football games. And that's why I would be okay with us going to a nine-game conference schedule if the price is right from ESPN, if the college football playoff gives some sort of indication that strength of schedule is going to take on more added importance when we expand to 12 teams in the playoffs. I want more good games. I want more compelling games. But I also don't really care that much in terms of how that actually works out, whether it's nine conference games to the SEC and then only one, maybe two non-conference power five opponents, or if it's eight conference games with two to three non-conference power five opponents. It's all the same thing to me. I just want to see good games. I just want to see good games, and I want to make sure that Georgia's path to the Cosual playoff is protected. And if that means we have to go to nine games to do it, then cool, let's go to nine games. If we can do that by staying at eight games and still playing two to three non-conference power five opponents, great, let's stay at eight games. All right, guys. Well, all right. So we went deep into this eight game versus nine game conference schedule discussion, but let's move on a little bit here and let's talk about another topic that I also got quite a few questions about over the weekend. Clearly my inbox was dominated by the eight game versus nine game discussion, but we also had a huge recruiting weekend this weekend here in Athens on campus. It was the first weekend 
of official visits during the summer, all June, every weekend during June, we're going to have official visitors on campus. It's a huge recruiting month now. It used to not be because you used to not be able to take official visits during the summer, but all the, the, the Big Ten schools, all the Northern schools complained about that because kids were having to come to their campuses and take their official visits when it was really cold and they had to kind of experience that environment and they couldn't show them like, hey, in the summer it feels a little bit different. They made an argument about that. They pitched a fit and so now you can do summer official visits, which makes it harder on coaches. Now you have to host kids during June. You still host official visitors during the season. It's just more work for these coaches. But anyway, June has become a big recruiting month. Now, one of the biggest recruiting months on the calendar at this point. And we had our first official visit that weekend this weekend, and we hosted a bunch of big-time targets, including a number of five-star prospects. We had Dylan Stewart on campus. He is an edge rusher. We had Justin Scott as a defensive tackle. Uh, Ryan Wingo, wide receiver, one of the top three wide receivers in the country. We had a long list of highly ranked four-star prospects, defensive tackle Marquise Eastley, defensive tackle Justin Green, linebacker Joseph Phillips. Big offensive lineman Daniel Calhoun from the state of Georgia. And to help with the recruitment of all these unrecruited prospects, we had a number of our currently committed prospects on campus. Some of them taking their official visit, some of them just coming into town to hang out to help with the recruiting process. Five-star quarterback Dylan Riola was in town. So was Demarcus Riddick, linebacker from Alabama. Peyton Woodyard was in town. Demello Jones, Ellis Robinson, the top-ranked defensive back in the country. So when I say it was a big recruiting weekend, you kind of get the idea, right? Now, in terms of information coming out of these visits, it's still very early after the visit, so I don't really have a ton to report here. But there are a few things of note that I I do think are worth bringing to your attention. And one of those things I think is worth bringing to your attention is that two of the prospects who are in town this weekend for their official visits have both already come out and said on Sunday that they are moving up their commitment timelines. Offensive tackle Marquise Easley and linebacker Joseph Phillips. Easley is out of Illinois and Phillips is out of Tuskegee, Alabama. And they had both previously said they were going to be committing much later in their recruitment process. But no, now they've decided to move it up following their official visit here to Athens. In fact, Easley wasn't going to commit until like October. But now on Instagram tonight, and that's what you have to do sometimes, guys, when it comes to recruiting after these official visits, the first thing I do is I scan social media. I scan Instagram. I scan Twitter. I scan TikTok to look at all these guys' accounts to see what they've posted coming off these visits because you'll get some information sometimes. Like that's the world we live in now. I'll try to tap some sources over the next week or so, but that takes a little bit more time. The fastest way to get information is straight from the source, straight from the horse's mouth, straight from these guys with what they put on social media. And according to Eastley, he is now going to be committing on July 8th. And Phillips, he wasn't as direct in terms of like declaring an actual commitment day, but what his plan was previously was to go take other visits other official visits during the season, like go to actual games at these places like Tennessee and Alabama. But apparently he's changed plans now. And what he plans to do coming off this Georgia visit is now to take an official visit to Tennessee next weekend and has now moved up his commitment timeline to commit at some point looks like this summer. Now, why does that matter? Well, when a prospect announces that he is moving up his commitment date and his entire recruiting process immediately following a visit to your campus, that's usually a sign that you made enough of an impact on the guy for him to decide that he's ready to end the process and go public with his commitment. It's usually a very good sign for the program he just got done visiting. 
It's like, okay, I've seen enough. You show me the light. I'm ready to be a Georgia Bulldog. So based on that alone, it seems like we are in very good shape for both Phillips and Eastley. And we were also already in very good shape with both these guys coming into the weekend. So when you were already in good shape with both these guys coming into their official visits this weekend, and then immediately following their official visits, they announce in some way, shape, or form that they're going to be moving up their commitment timeline, their recruiting process, that's usually a pretty good sign that we made a major move and or went ahead and just sealed the deal with them. Now, one of the prospects who I'm really intrigued by, and I'm really curious to see if we can get into his recruitment a little bit deeper, is a guy named Williams Nawanri. And I'm sure I'm butchering that last name. I've never heard anyone actually pronounce it. So that's what I'm going with until I hear otherwise. But he's a big-time prospect, guys. He's a defensive lineman. He's really a five-tech guy right now. He's 6'5", 250. And we need five-techs in a bad way, guys. Like We really need to load up on the five-tech position. And he is one of those guys, one of the best in the country. In fact, he's rated, according to 247 Composite, as the number one defensive lineman in the country. He's number three overall, big-time five-star prospect. And we got him in town this weekend for an official visit. He still has four more official visits to take. He's going to take visits to Oklahoma, Tennessee, Missouri, and Oregon. And I really like this guy. I really like him. He reminds me, to give you guys a comp to somebody on our team right now, I think he's more of a Michael Williams type player than anyone else on our roster right now. I think that's kind of what he projects to be. A five tech that's strong enough and stout enough to set the edge against the run that can also give you a really strong pass rush off the edge. I also think he has the ability and the athleticism to play a little bit of jack. I don't think he's a full-time jack, but situationally you can use him in that role. He's got enough athleticism to do that. I do think he's more of a five-tech than anything, but he's just a football player, and he is going to be an impact player wherever he goes. I wasn't holding my breath on us being able to land him coming into the weekend. I still don't think that we're the favorite. I certainly would not call us a favorite right now, but it seems that we certainly helped ourselves this weekend. Again, I need to put some feelers out and ask around a little bit, but the early returns that I've read so far, again, this is me reading reports. This is not me talking to people that I know because I haven't really had a chance to do that yet, but I want to give you guys the up-to-date information as soon as we've got it here. But uh, according to Chad Simmons of On3, who does a great job covering just national college football recruiting, especially the Southeast, Georgia as well, he got an interview with him on Sunday, and he quoted him as saying, Quote, I feel like they set the bar really high with them setting the bar high. It's going to be easy to compare them to the other official visits that are coming up. End quote. Uh, That's kind of like cliche recruiting visit talk. You hear those kind of sentiments quite a bit coming off, off official visits. Rarely does a prospect speak poorly of the school that he just visited. So I wouldn't read too much into that, but it does seem like we helped ourselves a little bit here and put ourselves in in a solid position to remain in the conversation, to remain in his recruitment moving forward. But he's not a guy that is going to be announcing his commitment anytime soon. And wide receiver Ryan Wingo is another prospect who kind of fits that bill, who has stated his intention to take his recruitment the distance. But he was in town this weekend for his official visit. He came to town on an unofficial visit during spring practice. And at that time, we were really, really starting to gain some momentum with Wingo to the point that I thought he might be one of those guys that would commit before we hit the summer. But as we got closer and closer to the summer, it seemed to be that we were losing momentum with him the further and further we got away from his visit during spring practice. So it was great to get him back on campus again. It was also great to have him on campus with Dylan Riola, 
who he has already really formed a strong bond with during this entire recruitment process. They've been on several visits together. So to have him on his official visit with Riola in town after Riola has gone ahead and gone public with his commitment to Georgia, that's huge. And again, I don't have a ton to really pass along here. I haven't heard much, but what I have heard, it's not much, but what I have heard, I do want to pass along. And what I've been told is that we put ourselves right back in the thick of this recruitment. I can't tell you that we're going to land him because I don't know that. The coaches don't know that right now. He probably doesn't know that right now. Tennessee, behind the scenes, has been the program that's really been starting to gain a lot of momentum with him. He's gotten really, really comfortable with the idea of playing in that Tennessee offense and putting up big numbers with that Josh Heupel offense, which I understand. I get that. That's the problem that we've had recruiting high-level receivers on a consistent basis. We've gotten a few guys here and there, right? But we've really had to hit on evaluations more than landing five stars over the past couple of cycles. And we just get killed on the negative recruiting front. Like it's a double-edged sword. We've talked about this on the show before. When you recruit tight ends and running backs as well as we do in offensive linemen as well as we do, it's hard to not feature them. Because when you have guys like Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington, and you throw in Oscar Delp, and you have guys like that, you have Branson Robinson as a five-star running back. When you have guys like that, what do you want to do? You want to you want to run a lot of 12 personnel. You want to run the football, work play action off that. You want to get the ball to your tight ends a lot. Brock Bowers is going to soon to be a three-time All-American at the University of Georgia. How do you not get that guy the ball? It would be malpractice if you didn't. But when you're doing that, when you're busy running the football and feeding the ball to your tight ends, you're not, number one, you're not getting as many receivers on the field. And number two, you're not feeding the ball as much. So it's very easy for opposing teams, for other programs around us, our competitors, to negatively recruit against us when it comes to receivers. Because all they have to do is say, they're not going to throw the ball to you. We're going to throw the ball to you twice as much as they do. They have all these tight ends. They're going to throw the ball to the tight ends. They have all these running backs. They want to run the football. You're just not going to get featured the way that you get featured if you play with us. And we've had a really hard time overcoming that because we haven't had a guy that we've really been able to point to and say, well, look what we did with this guy. I know you want to say George Pickens, and I think George would have been that guy for us in 2021 if he had not gotten injured, if it wasn't for the ACL injury. That kind of, I truly believe that set us back when it comes to wide receiver recruiting because I thought George could be that guy. I thought he'd be the guy who could break a thousand yards for as a receiver. Didn't happen because of the injury. And then Brock became who Brock has become and you've got to give the guy the ball. And so we still have trouble getting a lot of traction with these five-star receivers. Like we get traction with them. Like we're always in the thick of because you're George and we can recruit really well. But we haven't been able to consistently land those guys. A.D. Mitchell's another one. A.D. Mitchell could have been that guy last year, but he missed basically the entire year with a with a sore ankle. So Texas better hope the turf monster doesn't get him this year, but that's their problem now. Eventually, we are going to land one of these guys, but it's still an uphill battle for us. Now, I will say the recruiting class that we have right now, I really, really like. I think Nitro Tuggle is a five-star caliber player. I really believe that. Now, he's moved up to a, a highly ranked four-star guy. He was completely off the radar when he first committed, but he's moved up. I think if he continues to have a, a, a big summer and he goes in, has a big senior season, he goes into the, the uh, All-American games and shows out at practice there, shows out in the game, I think he could ultimately move up to a five-star once it's all said and done. But regardless of what his ranking is, Nitro Tuggle is the truth. He's a real deal kind of player. I love Sokovi White. I think he's a prototype slot receiver, and you guys know I love those kind of guys. I'm really high on Nycar out of Colquitt County. I think we have three really good players on the commitment list right now, receiver, but it'd be really nice to be able to add one of these five-star guys, whether it's Jeremiah Smith, who's currently committed to Ohio State. We're trying everything we possibly can to flip this guy. Dylan Ryle is certainly all over about that, and that's going to be an uphill battle as well, but hey, he's at least listening. He's taking visits here, and we've got a shot. We're in the conversation.
Cameron Coleman out of Alabama is another guy who I really, really like. In fact, I might like Coleman better than Wingo. Like we're splitting hairs there. Wingo, Smith, Coleman, they're all three really, really good players. I like Coleman a lot. I like that length. I like I like his athleticism, his body control, his ability to high point the football. He's another five-star that we are very much in the conversation for. And you, you can't forget about Mike Matthews from Georgia, Parkview actually, one of my old rivals back in the day. But Mike Matthews is a big-time player. He could play receiver. He could play DB. He's a top 20 player nationally. He's the number seven wide receiver in the country. I don't think we are the favorite right now. In fact, I know that we're not the favorite right now, but we haven't given up in that recruitment. I would call him a longer shot than it, than the other three, whether it's Coleman, Wingo, or Smith right now. But hey, there's still some time to get back in that recruitment. But right now, I just don't think that we are as much of a player in his recruitment as we are those other three guys. But if we can land just one of those guys, if we can land Jeremiah Smith some way, somehow flip him from Ohio State, which is going to be really difficult because the way that we recruit tight ends, that's how Ohio State recruits receivers. So it's going to be really difficult for us to be able to flip because all they do is produce big-time five-star wide receivers who go on to be first-round draft picks, just like we do with tight ends and, and offensive linemen. So it's going to be really tough, but hey, man, like he's listening, and that's all you can ask for at this stage in the game. But Smith, Wingo, Coleman, if we can land one of those three, and heck, maybe, maybe Mike Matthews, we'll see, but just one of those five-star guys, that would be the cherry on top of what I already think is a fantastic receiver class. And that could really change the game for us when it comes to wide receiver recruiting, which has been a major issue for us for a while. Brian McClendon is doing a damn good job on the trail right now. And I just have a feeling that if he can land one of these big-time five-star top three wide receivers in the country, if he can land one of them, the dam's going to break. But another five-star prospect that was in town this weekend for his official visit was edge rusher Dylan Stewart. He's number 13 overall in the 247 composite. He's out of Washington, D.C. Look, like, we're in the conversation. Like, if he's taking an official visit to your school, like, you're in the conversation. I do not think we are near the top for Dylan Stewart. I, I would be surprised if we ultimately end up landing him. Everything I've heard has told me that. But, again, like, when you get a guy on campus, you got a shot. So we'll see how that one plays out, but that's a guy I certainly wouldn't hold my breath on. And I hate to do this to you guys. I should have mentioned him earlier. I hate to end on this note, but the last player that I want to talk about today is a guy that wasn't on campus this weekend for a visit. He was on the campus of Clemson, and that is linebacker Sammy Brown out of Jefferson, what, 20, 25 minutes from, from Athens? And the update here is that coming off the official visit to Clemson this weekend, Steve Wiltfong, who is the director of football recruiting for 247 Sports, who's a, who does a great job following national recruiting. Today, on Sunday, he entered a crystal ball for Sammy Brown to go to Clemson. Now, just because Steve Wiltfong has put in a crystal ball for Clemson for Sammy Brown right now doesn't necessarily mean that's where Sammy Brown is going to go, but Wiltfong is usually pretty good on these things. Now, he did have Dylan Riola at one point crystal ball to Nebraska, and then he changed that when he got more information. So maybe things change. And that's what happens, guys. In recruiting, things change. But Sammy Brown, for a long time, has basically been down to two schools. It's been Georgia, and it's been Clemson. And for those of you who are not familiar with Sammy Brown, he's been on the national radar for like three years now since he was a sophomore. I remember watching him. I think I'm pretty sure it was when he was a sophomore. Yeah, it was definitely when he was a sophomore because I was watching Malachi Starks and you see this guy like, who's this dude with like the Jerry curls? But he's a big time linebacker prospect. He's number 14 national 247 composite, the number two linebacker in the country, 6'2", 230 pounds, big, strong, fast, physical. He's, he's a big time prospect, but it appears that Clemson has taken the lead in his recruitment at the very least right now. He is currently scheduled to be in Athens next weekend for an official visit. 
I hope he makes that visit. If he does not, if he, like, in the next day or two announces, oh, he's done with his official visits, well, then that means he's going to Clemson. Like, he might as well just go ahead and commit. But if he makes it to town, Clemson might have the lead right now, and they might still have the lead after he comes for his, for his official visit to Athens. But you want to get him on campus. You got to get him on campus one more time. He's been to Georgia plenty of times. You know, when Dylan Riola was in town a couple weeks ago, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot made of Dylan Riola and some of the other prospects who were there on campus getting together and driving out to Jefferson to go throw the ball around with Sammy Brown on Jefferson High School's field. But right now, it doesn't look like that had too much of an impact. It normally doesn't, guys. That's what I told you a couple weeks ago. Like, there's a lot always made of these these prospects who are recruiting other prospects around the country, the friendships they form. It's, oh, yeah, like, we, we're tight. Like, we want to go to school together. We, we want to we wanna win titles together. And, like, it's cool to talk about those things. It's all nice to hear. It usually doesn't work out that way. And I don't want to put the cart ahead of the horse here, guys, but it does look like Sammy Brown's trending to go to Clemson right now. And if that doesn't end up being the case, I know the question's going to become, how do, you, how do you not land this guy? How do you let this five-star prospect from like 20 minutes down the road get out of town? How do you let him go to Clemson? How do you not reel him in, Kirby Smart? Have you lost your touch, Kirby? Guys, come on. Come on. Look, there's context to this. We just signed one of the best inside linebacker classes that I have ever seen last year. That is not an exaggeration, guys. Raylan Wilson, C.J. Allen... Troy Bowles, that trio of inside linebackers, that's as good as it gets in one single class. You still got guys like Jalen Walker, who's now apparently back at inside linebacker, EJ Lightsey. You got some big time dudes in that inside linebacker room right now. And all I'm saying is, it's going to be far tougher for him to get playing time at Georgia than than it will be for him to get playing time at Clemson right now. I don't care how good you are. And Sammy Brown is a really good player, guys. He is. He's a really good player. But the dudes that would be in front of him at Georgia who have a year or two on him, they are dudes. And I certainly think that has to be part of the equation here. Now, the other part of this is something that I think a lot of people don't really understand. I think the the pretty basic assumption is, hey, if there's a prospect that's within like a 50 square mile radius of your campus, like he has to have grown up a big time fan of that school and like you have to be able to land him. Like, there's no way that you can miss him. If you miss on that guy, that just means, like, you don't know how to recruit. Guys, it, it doesn't always work out like that. Not every player is like Malachi Starks, who grew up really close to Athens and grew up a massive Georgia fan. A lot of guys, that, that is the case for. But there are plenty of players who that is not how it works for them. They don't have parents that went to Georgia or are Georgia fans. They have no real ties to UGA other than the fact they grew up like 20 minutes from campus. And when you have guys like that who, yeah, they grew up close to your school, but they never were like big time diehard fans. A lot of those guys, they just want to get away from home. Think about you guys when you were going to college, when you went up to college. You wanted to get out, right? You wanted to go away. You want to go do your thing. You didn't want to live 10 minutes from your parents anymore. I can tell you guys, like working with young people here in Athens, a lot of them have no interest in going to UGA. And you're like, what? Like, it's Georgia. It's right here. But like, I just want to get out of Athens. I want to go somewhere else. And so, yeah, like a lot of times proximity can work in your favor. But there are plenty of instances where it kind of works against you. It just depends on the specific situation of that player. And with Sammy Brown not really having any like deep ties to UGA, he just seems to be one of those guys who just wants to get out and like still be close enough to home, but not like 10, 20 minutes from home. 
and also go play for a school where he might have a chance to get on the field as a freshman more so than he would at Georgia. And that's where a guy like Joseph Phillips comes into play. He was here on an official visit this weekend. He's an inside linebacker. We are very high on him. Glenn Schumann's been down to see him twice in the past month. This is why you recruit more than just a couple of guys in that position. You don't put all your eggs in one basket. All right, Sammy Brown, you want to go to Clemson? All right, good luck to you, man. Joseph Phillips, let's go. But guys, even if we do ultimately end up losing Sammy Brown, I am not going to lose a wink of sleep because there is no healthier position on our roster right now than inside linebacker. And yes, I include the tight ends, guys. I know how well we recruit tight end. I think our inside linebacker room right now is as good of a room as we have on our entire team. So Sammy Brown's a good player. Good luck to him. If he does go to Clemson, I promise you, we will be just fine. But all right, guys, that's all I got for today. I will be back later this week. As I said earlier in the show, I'm going to do my best here to try to give you guys as educated a prediction as to what our 2024 schedule will look like. I just got to lay this whole thing out. And I might throw in a couple extra mailbag questions in there as well. I've been sitting on a couple of these for a couple of weeks, and I would love to go ahead and uh, jump on them. So we'll try to do that later this week. But thanks for being here, guys. Always appreciate you. I'm Tyler, and as always, go dogs.